Good morning and welcome. I'm, I'm so glad you're with us this morning. I was just thinking how much I miss church coffee. Can you imagine? I miss church coffee. Anyone? Anyone out there? Oh, would love to have you and enjoy coffee again together. We'll, do, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, again, glad you're connecting with us. And uh, we're in our series in the Gospel according to Matthew. And today, we're doing part two of looking how Jesus read the Bible and what that means for us in our approach to Scripture. First, let me ask you, how many of you like mixed nuts? How many of you actually thought of your family when I said that term? Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Angel and I, we, we love mixed nuts, and maybe our family's a little mixed and nutty, I think. But uh, they're kind of a treat in our house. They're a special thing. We don't have them on hand all the time, but we've had some recently. And, and I don't know if, if you eat mixed nuts like this. Some people, uh, it's pretty funny, have this deal that you reach into the bowl and you take what you get, right? It's just, it's, you get the grab. Uh, not, that, that's, how, that's how I kind of grew up with mixed nuts. Uh, but in our household, we do it a little differently now. Um, for us, it's a little bit more like panning for gold. <laughs> Angel, she, she looks at the bowl, and she's looking to pick out the cashews, and I look at the bowl, and I'm picking out every... I, I cashews are my least favorite of those nuts, and I'm looking for the Brazil nuts and the pecans and the almonds, but it's really entertaining watching us now eat together mixed nuts. Fantastic. We pick out our favorites and we ignore the rest. But this is actually a common approach to how we treat the Bible. We, we maybe can, uh, commit the sin of Marcion. He's kind of recognized as the first church heretic who basically edited down the Bible to the parts he liked. He was all grace, not law. And so he basically cut out, you know, took an exacto blade, cut out the Old Testament uh, he thought that uh, three of the four Gospels were, were really written to Jewish people specifically. He thought they weren't relevant anymore, so he only liked the Gospel of Luke, and then he liked the writings of Paul. Um, but some of us, we, we do kind of the similar thing. We steer clear of parts of the Bible that we don't like or that maybe we find hard to understand or we find boring. Um, some of us kind of fixate on, on small parts of the Bible that we really resonate with, and they become our favorites. And then there are some who discount parts of the Bible because, honestly, they take offense to it. They take issue to it. Or, or there are maybe others who really like the message of grace in the Bible, but maybe take issue with anything that looks anything like a law or a rule or a responsibility. And so our approach to the Bible is actually kind of important because we're living in a, in a day where it's increasingly secular, where more and more of the teachings of the Bible clash head-to-head -head with our culture's values. And I think we're tempted to simply check off those parts, to chuck those parts of the Bible that we don't like. We also live in a day where the word authority is, is a bad word. We don't like the idea of living under anyone's authority. In, in the past uh, 30 years, pretty much my entire adult life, that portion of my life, there's been this shift away from living under any, of a, any kind of authority to now uh, living under what is probably our highest cultural value of being true to yourself or, or doing 
whatever it is that feels right for you. And it's kind of meant that we're in this cultural tsunami right now. Doesn't it feel like it? Where everything is kind of fair game and is getting redefined. We're throwing out the things of the past quite recklessly, it seems. So as followers of Jesus, we kind of need to regularly step out of, intentionally step out of kind of the, the flow of, of culture, it, those messages of do anything you like, to, to reorientate ourselves in the mindset and teachings of Jesus. So how does he lead us in, in reading the Bible? We'll look at a few thoughts to keep in mind as we learn to you know, read the Bible from Jesus and then look at some fascinating Old Testament case laws and see how they might be relevant or might not be relevant to us today. Does that sound like a plan? Why don't we pray for a moment? Lord, uh, we, we want to come and we want to hear your word this morning. We want to hear your opinion and have you speak to us. Uh, and uh, how one of the ways you primarily do that is through scripture. And so may you open us up to hearing from you today. Uh, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, first we'll start with four things to keep in mind as we learn to read the Bible from Jesus. First, for Jesus, the Bible is sacred text to be handled carefully. You get this in John 10. Uh, Jesus is having a difficult, uh, you know, dis disagreement, let's call it, with the religious leaders. And in verse 35, Jesus says, Scripture cannot be broken. It cannot be set aside. And Jesus, time after time, I'll, I'll, kind of along the way, would, would say things like, the Holy Spirit said by so-and-so, by David, or the Holy Spirit said by, by Isaiah. And then Paul later wrote in 2 Timothy that, that all Scripture is God-breathed. Peter would, would speak about how the prophets didn't speak by themselves. He said, for prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Yes, Scripture was written by people, people with a variety of, of personalities and styles and to a specific time and to a specific culture with varying genres of, of literature. But it was more than that. It was inspired and, and breathed by God. It was God's idea. It wasn't dictated. It wasn't just they were just receiving word for word. It, it, but it was inspired. God was somehow at work in these biblical writers to, to bring truth and wisdom and insight as to how to best live life, how life's meant to work. I like, again, the words the Apostle Paul used when he said, all scriptures God breathed, and it's useful for teaching and, and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness or, or goodness. What Paul said, and more importantly, what Jesus is saying is the Bible is true. It's trustworthy. Don't be loose with it. Be careful with it. Not, be careful not to cast it aside. Second for Jesus, read the Bible in such a way as to get back to the heart of the message, really the heart of, of, of what God is saying. This is what we see in the six examples that follow our text today. Those, you, know, you have heard it said, but I say to you those words of Jesus um, what, what Jesus models for us in those moments is this 
wrestling with Scripture in order to get at the true meaning, to, to get at what was uh, God's original intent in those laws. Sometimes someone might say, the Bible says, and then whatever that comes out of their mouth next. And i got to say, sometimes what follows from their lips is certainly not what the Bible means. It was not the, the message that God was intending to bring. I mean, think of it, how at times the Bible has been used by people, by Christians, to justify awful behaviors. Things like slavery, or, or militarism, or sexism, or racism. I mean, think how close to home that's, that's been hitting in, in this last couple of weeks as we think of the atrocities that have been carried out against indigenous peoples, sometimes justified by Scripture. My, my youth pastor growing up, he often, in his mentoring of us, warned us that you can pretty much make the Bible say whatever you want it to say. So, so Jesus is saying, even in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, is to read the Bible with humility and to wrestle with what we find there so that we don't miss God's point. You've heard it said, but I say to you, and it doesn't matter if you think you know the Bible inside or out, in, in every day, in every culture, we need to keep on asking, how do we apply this today? How do we apply uh, and, and get the heart of what Scripture teaches and what God is saying? Jesus wants us to wrestle with Scripture. Third, for Jesus, the Bible is not just to be read and, and believed. It's meant to be practiced. It's meant to be lived, to do what it says. He says in our text here, he says, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be great. And then if you fast forward to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually gives us a parable to kind of conclude his sermon. And he basically says, you know, there's those who build their life on, on rock, and there's those who build their life on sand. And the person who actually builds their life on rock is building it on our word. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, Jesus says, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and when the storms came, the, rock, the house stood firm. So it's not enough to just read it and study it, but at some point you have to live it and live under its authority. Fourth, finally, for Jesus, the Bible is a story that reaches its climax in himself, in the person of Jesus. There's that word Matthew liked to use, fulfill again, right? And there's all kinds of ways we find Jesus fulfilling Scripture. For Jesus, the Old Testament had this forward dynamic to it. For Jesus, it's reaching its climax in him, in his life, and in his teaching, in his death and his resurrection, in his ascension, in even the promise of his second coming, in the kingdom of God that's, that's now available to us through him. I said this last week, but we read the Bible knowing that the interpretive key to Scripture is Jesus. That's how we understand the whole story. Think about it. What did, what did the Apostle John call Jesus? Jesus was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. The, word, the Greek word there is logos. And so we're, 
we're not to be people of the book so much. We're actually to be people of the word and remembering that the word is Jesus. Okay, I want to shift gears here a bit, and I want us to have a little practice interacting with Old Testament Scripture, specifically some Old Testament case laws and discern what we need to keep from the Old Testament and, and in terms of the law and what we might be free to set aside in light of Jesus. First, a flashback to Genesis. Some of the most important chapters in the Bible are Genesis 1, 2, and, and 3. In, in superhero parlance, this is kind of our origin story that then frames the rest of our story. In Genesis 2, we're giving, given kind of a, a clear picture of God's idea, ideal, what he intends for, for humanity, human, humankind having a harmonious relationship with God. You know, they, they walked with God in the garden. And then the ideal of a monogamous marriage, you know, between two people, a, a man and a woman. That's Genesis chapter 2. But the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, we have the fracturing of God's ideal. Adam and Eve decide to redefine good and evil for themselves. Theologians call this the fall. Milton called it paradise lost. I don't know if you've ever been like me and been annoyed at Adam and Eve for how they messed up and we get to pay the price, right? You know, they, they infected the world with sin and we get, you know, there are ancestors and we've inherited some bad stuff from them. Uh, as the older I get, I kind of think, if not them, me <laughs> or you. I think, I, think, I think we would have done it, right? Anyway, we fast forward to the Ten Commandments. Uh, things have gotten broken, and we find that there's already a recovery plan in place, and God's trying to restore his broken, fallen uh, creation. And he gives the Ten Commandments, which in it we have God restating his design for human flourishing through these ten laws. And he says it's going to include things like a a single-heartedness towards God, not giving our hearts to other idols, uh, and, and then honoring Sabbath, you know, treating one day of seven as holy, not cheating on your spouse, not coveting your neighbor's stuff or stealing your neighbor's things, no murder, no lies, and so on. And then what we find in, in different parts of the Torah, in the books like Exodus and Deuteronomy and, and, and Leviticus, we have these lists of case laws, which actually help the Israelites apply or take the Ten Commandments and then apply them to specific situations. Now, it's important for us to think about this because it's been real easy for some to simply disregard these Old Testament case laws, proposing that those laws don't really apply to us today. I think that's too simplistic an understanding, but it's true. We have a different historical context, and we actually have a different redemptively historical uh, context, and uh, different than when those laws were written. And so not all the case laws apply to us this, in the same way, but it doesn't mean that we set aside all the case law because they're actually not all in the same categories. Why don't you nerd out with me just for a bit here as we kind of dig into to, to these case laws. Scholars pretty much... Uh, divide these case laws into three categories. 
There's the uh, ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. It can be uh, a little confusing because when you read them kind of in order and in in the scripture, they're all kind of mixed together. But they're all helpful categories for us as we look at the Old Testament and we see how the New Testament appropriates Old Testament law. Our understanding of what Jesus is saying is the law continues until it's fulfilled. And the laws we call ceremonial laws are laws that are fulfilled in Christ. Sometimes they're called ritual purity laws, but they point to Jesus, and they're fulfilled in him in such a way that we don't observe them anymore. A good example of laws around something like this would be the one around circumcision. You know, the cutting off of a man's foreskin. Thankfully, most often it happened before they could form long-term memories of this kind of thing. I love that. Uh, But this was a law specifically about marking the men of Israel as being set apart by God, as belonging to God. The the early church really struggled with this practice as as they started having Gentile believers coming to Christ. And they, they came to the conclusion that this was a law believers no longer had to practice because as Paul talks about in Jesus there's now this circumcision of the heart that, that whereby the Spirit, he confirms that we belong to God, that, that we're now God's set-apart children. We're part of God's family. Another example is we don't you know, offer sacrifices because Jesus is the once-and-for-all sacrifice. Uh, we don't ordain priests in the same way that the Old Testament does because Jesus is the ultimate priest, And we are now a priesthood of all believers. I'd argue we don't recognize Sabbath the same way as they did in the Old Testament, as if it's sacred time, different from ordinary time, because now all time is holy. We could go on and on. We don't observe food laws anymore, because the purpose of food laws were to keep Jews and Gentiles separate. But now, as Ephesians 4 says, the the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles have come down, and and so they can eat together. All cultures are kind of invited to the banquet, or they're invited to to join together with Christ, which means bacon scallops are back on the menu, boys. (laughs) Yes. Then there were the civil laws, which have to do with Israel as a nation, a nation that was chosen by God to be a priestly nation among the nations. So the civil laws are no longer relevant, at least not in the same way, but they're kind of relevant in some way in the church today. As opposed to the Old Testament where the the people of God are a nation state called by God, after Christ the people of God are now the church, drawn from many different nations. That also has an effect on the so-called penalties of the law. And in the Old Testament law there are you know, actual physical penalties for breaking the law, but the church doesn't impose that kind of punishment for infractions to the law. It's supposed to impose a kind of spiritual correction and something that we call church discipline. It's helpful to think in terms of these categories, and it's helpful to know that there's actually a third category, moral law. Moral laws are are those that remain relevant to our trying to understand how God wants us to live our lives. As we look at the case law, we see that the case law applies general ethical principles 
For example, it takes the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and then in places like Leviticus 18 and 20, it begins to unpack what that looks like in terms of God's desire for sexual wholeness and, and purity in our lives. Or another example, there's a, a number of case laws flowing out of the command, thou shalt not murder. And what the, does, what the case law does is applies that command to very specific situations, sometimes kind of humorous, but sometimes in ways that are contextually different than, than our sociological context today. One of my, my favorites to reflect on is the one you find in Deuteronomy 22, which says you must kind of build a fence around your roof. You know, my, my first reaction is, that's odd, you know? I'm, I'm not going to do that, uh, build a fence around my, my roof. But if you go back to the Old Testament time period and we realize that in ancient Israel, roofs were a living space. A living space. It's the kind of place you'd go and, and people would congregate on your roof. You'd entertain often on your roof. It's like a living room. It's kind of like patios have become during COVID for us, right? <laughs> to have a roof with no fence or parapet around it would be flagrantly dangerous. To build a fence around your roof is preserving life, and therefore it's keeping the commandment to not murder. And if you don't build a fence around your roof and somebody falls off your roof, you violated that command. Now, as I think of my own situation, my, my roof is very slanted. I pay professionals to go on my roof and on rare occasions. I'm not going to build a fence on my roof. But it actually gets us thinking about how we organize life, how actually when it comes to buildings, how we are careful around architecture. You'd never build a balcony, would you, without a railing? Uh, at Whistler, you'll see uh, these bars that are crossed at the, at the bottom of their slanted roofs, and they're there actually to keep ice from falling off, sla ice slabs falling off the roof and hitting unsuspecting pedestrians below. And then some of you, maybe you have a pool, and uh, we actually have laws around this that you build and you take great care to, to, to build a pool in such a way that there's a, a fence around your pool so that someone couldn't inadvertently stumble in and fall in the water and drown. And what you're doing in those moments is you're taking responsibility to protect life. And the point is, is really that fencing your roof, that case law, it's not irrelevant. It's still an application of do not murder, which we can then learn from and then make that appropriate application to our context. And if you were to talk to lawyers, they'd tell you that's, that's what law is. That's what law does. That's how it works. In fact, actually a lot of Western law derives straight from these chapters in Leviticus and other places from the Old Testament. We do this. We, we take this case law and we wrestle with it and we apply it to the ethical questions of our day. I, I, I'm so grateful for the Christian minds and the doctors, the Christian doctors who wrestle with questions around medical ethics. And it's why many Christians oppose the government of Canada's made provision, medical assistance in death. It's, it's grappling with that command to not murder, which 
which actually, if you go beneath the surface level of the command, which Jesus models for, for us in the Sermon on the Mount, the command to not murder is about recognizing the profound value and worth and sanctity of a human life. The commands of Scripture suggest that both our lives and our deaths are truly out of our hands. We're, we're meant to trust God with both our life and our death. So you can't just kind of write off the case law just because it's case law. But, but people do this all the time, especially with regards to moral laws around sexuality. We're living in a day where it's increasingly difficult to even talk about these issues around sexuality, around God's instruction and God's ideals about what he, his vision for sex is. But what some well-meaning Christians do is, is actually set aside some of the teachings of the Old Testament saying, it's just case law, it's not relevant to us as Christians. Except you would have to show how the case law is, is no longer relevant to the new covenant that's brought in by Jesus. Someone might make the case that we observe food laws, or, or pardon me, we don't observe food laws, and there are far more Old Testament laws around food than there are about sexuality, and we don't pay attention to the food laws anymore. But again, if you look at the New Testament, the New Tes Testament very explicitly, I think of Peter on the roof, right, in, in the book of Acts, but it very explicitly does away with the food laws because they were a way of keeping the Jews and Gentiles separate preserving the identity of God's people. But if anything, the, the sexual laws are even more strict in the New Testament. For example, around divorce and what Jesus says about it, it's, it's a lot harder to get a divorce in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. And in some of the most divisive issues around sexuality, the New Testament confirms the Old Testament case law. It's not a matter of the case law becoming less important. In some cases, they become more stringent according to Jesus and the rest of the New Testament. By the way, these are divisive issues, and we don't have time to unpack these this morning, but I want to bring it back to the point. Do you see how tempting it is in our day to disregard the Bible in all kinds of unhelpful ways? I think we're living in a day where we're kind of reliving Genesis chapter 3. You know, Garden of Eden with a serpent whispering in our ear where we are redefining evil and good for ourselves. The core question in the garden and in our garden is are we in charge of good and evil or not? Or is there a creator and we are his creation and he knows better than we do? That's really the question. Whether we like it or not, our relationship with God, according to Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, seems to be tied somehow to our relationship with the Bible. Because the Bible is how the authority of God is mediated or made real to his followers. Scholar and, and pastor uh, Andrew Wilson makes this point in his little book on the Bible. He says this, he says, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ. I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him, and I've decided to follow him. So if he 
talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful? I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Our obedience to the teachings of the New Testament are an expression of our obedience to Jesus. Our obedience to the appropriate application of Old Testament is a, a, a testament to our, our obedience to Jesus. The central message of the church is Jesus is Lord. To say Jesus is Lord, to say Jesus, we celebrate his coming and the coming of his kingdom, and then to disregard the teachings of Jesus seems hypocritical, doesn't it? To say Jesus is Lord is to say that there is a God, and I'm not him. He is Lord, and he knows better, and he knows the path of life. As Andy Stanley once said, he said, if a man can predict his own death and resurrection and pull it off, I just go with whatever that man says. You know, for those of us who seek to follow Jesus and obey the teachings of Scripture as taught by Jesus, we're actually told that there's kind of this promise or this invitation. Jesus said in in verse 19 of Matthew 5, whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And and, and here's the thing. As you begin to live a life under Jesus' authority and obedience to him, day after day, just practicing his teaching and trying to live his way, live the Jesus way, he says, I'll make you great. And and by the way, great doesn't mean, you know, popular or uh, wealthy and rich and famous. By that he means he'll lead us increasingly into a life that honors God, that is a life of freedom and wholeness, and into a a transformed self where we become more and more the person that God dreamed you up to be. Why don't we pray this morning? It's uh, been a challenging message, and let's take a moment just of quiet to reflect, and then I'll lead us in prayer. Jesus, we thank you for your example and your guidance when it comes to living the best life. I I love that you want that for us. And 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 we appreciate that you are straight with us, even when sometimes it feels like inconvenient truth. But we hold on to the fact that you said, Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, we learn from you to treat the Bible carefully because, as you said, it's it's not something that's going to be set aside. It's been breathed and inspired by God, and, and therefore it's trustworthy and true and useful for training in righteousness and, and goodness. Help us, God, to not be loose with your word, to not set it aside, but to, to read with care. And Jesus, you urge us to read the Bible thoughtfully, to wrestle with it and wrestle with the text so that we 
don't miss the, you know, the heart of God's message to us. Thank you for modeling this for us, Jesus. And I pray that you would help each of us and us as a community of people to grapple with the challenging ideas we find in Scripture. And Jesus, you invite us to not just read and believe the Bible, but to live it and to practice it. Help us, God, not to just be hearers of the Word, but to be doers of the Word. And by practice, you might actually do a thing in our hearts and in our lives and, and transform our character so that we would become more and more like Jesus, that his love would become more real in and through us. And Jesus, we see how the Bible reaches its climax and fulfillment in you. Teach us, Lord, to live out that pronouncement, Jesus is Lord. And teach us, God, uh, man, in these challenging days, to live counterculturally, to step out of the flow of our culture, and to walk in your ways, Lord. Your, your way lasts, God. Cultures come and go. Help us to live under your authority in obedience to your teaching. We love you, Jesus. Help us to trust the Bible because we trust in you. Help us to, to trust even when some of our questions go unanswered or our answers remain unpopular. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.